You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Car Feature. With Nicole Lowe. Nicole Lowe is back with us on our Car Feature. We take your calls on 011-8830702 and the WhatsApp's 072-702-1702. Start to get all of your technical car questions through for Nicole Lowe to assist you. Nicole, how are you doing? Happy Tuesday. Hi, Rebecca. Our listeners are doing very well. And regarding saying I'm sorry if you're married, <laughs> then, you're, then you're wrong all the time anyway. <laughs> Nicole, you know you must start to give marriage classes. And the, that's basically the lesson is just know you are always wrong if you're the husband. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you figured this thing out, you're going to be having a long and happy marriage. So let's talk about four by fours and, and um, the tire pressures and why we need to specifically speak about the terrains we're going to talk about now. Yes. Yeah, so normally when we speak about tire pressures on our road cars, it's very important to keep to the manufacturer's claim or the manufacturer's recommended pressures because that will influence your road holding. It will also give you optimum fuel economy, all those kind of things. But if you've got a 4x4 and you enjoy off-road driving and especially sand driving, then there's a very good reason to start lowering your tire pressures. And really, would you know why do you lower your tire pressures when you go into sand? I mean, I'm assuming there's some sinking that's happening and it's something to do with that. So what is happening is a lot of people think if you deflate the tires, it gets wider. Uh, To some extent, it's true, but actually the footprint of the tire on the sand gets longer. So you're increasing the footprint of the tire the more you deflate it on the sand that distributes the normal force of the vehicle, the mass, basically, and gives you better traction. So you don't get stuck as easily as, as you would do with normal tire pressures. And to prove the point, I was involved with a tire test with Ryan Fisaghi from General Tires. We had an all-terrain tire, and we had a June, and we prepared the June. We had a Ford Ranger test vehicle, and we fitted it with the all-terrain General Tires, and then we had equipment on the vehicle that recorded the distance it actually traveled up to June and also the time. And what we did was we started with a very high tire pressure. So we prepared the surface, everything to keep all the variables uh, as constant as possible. And we started with three bars, which is very high. The vehicle basically didn't move. Um, when you pull can the you, weight... Can you give uh, us sand. context of the three bars, Nickel? Because and, yeah, and so let's, normal... let's, speak, let's speak your average vehicle so we all know the yes. context. Yes. So that's very high. Your normal tire pressure in that vehicle is around 2.2, 2.4 bar. So that's extremely high. And that means the tires are really then overinflated in, in the rock hard. And there was like no traction. It just sank into the, into, into the sand. Then we lowered it to the manufacturer's claim uh, figure or recommended figure. And it moved about three meters, four meters, and again got stuck there. So then we, we started deflating the tires by 0.2 of a bar and repeating the test, repeating the test. It got better and better and better. But where we the, the biggest increases when, uh, in performance that is on sand is when we got to 1.2 bar pressure. Then it's the first time that the vehicle actually went up the dune. So there was definitely, and it, I know it all depends on the type of tire, the type of sand, all those kind of things play their part. And mm-hmm. I know this is a conversation around the bright fire that can go on forever. What is the optimum <laughs> pressure on sand? But I can tell you that at 1.2 bar, there was a definite big step up in performance. 
we we went down uh, one bar, point eight bar, point six bar even, and the the performance increases, but not as dramatically as what happened by one point two bar. And the risk is, if you start dropping under a bar pressure, then you also run the risk of actually popping the the tire off the rim and the the air escaping, and then you're sitting with a flat tire on sand. And I can tell you. From personal experience, trying to, to replace a flat tire on sand is not is not simple. So as a top tip for people out there, if you start driving in the sand, 1.2 bar is a very safe pressure to go to. Because remember, once you've driven in sand, um, you also want to drive home again. And you shouldn't drive with, with uh, deflated tires on tar at speed because the heat build-up will, be, will increase uh, the road holding of the vehicle. It's basically just dangerous. So if you know you're going to drive a long way on tar, you have to take your, your, your pump. If you have a hand pump, you'll get very fit uh, to try to pump <laughs> four tires. But if you've got one of these nice 4x4 accessory pumps, then obviously you can do it from the battery. But the 1.2 bar will allow you to drive for a short distance on tar as well to the nearest fuel station. Just get your tires inflated. If you drop to like 0.6 bar, there's no way you should drive on, on tar with those kind of pressures. It's very low. And the problem is also if you're at that lower pressure and you start doing a turn in sand, that's where the, the tire will actually just fold uh, underneath the rim and then the air escapes and that's game over. So, yeah, very interesting. There's some real technical stuff why... Uh, the, the grip is actually better when you deflate the tire, but top tip, 1.2 bar. If you get stuck at 1.2 bar, you can go lower than that, but you then, then run the risk of popping a tire off the rim. But now for the listener who's like, oh my gosh, Nichols spoke about dunes and I can't get myself to Dubai. Where can they go to have that amazing experience where they can deflate their tires? Yeah, so there's a lot of places in South Africa where you can still drive on the sand. I'm fortunate enough to live in the Western Cape, so we've got Atlantis Dunes here, which is uh, available to the public to go and drive. You need a permit, obviously. And I know close to Fleerspire, there's another place you can drive, but I'm, I'm sure a lot of uh, listeners can phone you and tell them where they go drive on sand. Uh, Namibia is obviously also a great destination if you like your desert tours and sand driving and so on. You're, you're such a show of Nicole telling us about living in the Western Cape and you've got these amazing places. Ah, oh, we will, I will phone you when I come down there and I can get to have that awesome experience. The lines are open 011-8830702. The WhatsApp line 0727021702. Nicole Lowe is here to answer all of your technical car questions. So any challenges that you are facing with your vehicle, you can get some advice right here. 702. The car feature with Nicole Lowe. Our very first question on the WhatsApp line says, Hi guys, a question. Will it make a difference when I sell my car if it has a new engine? Will I be able to get more or is it sort of frowned upon? That is from Jay. Okay, so it is a difficult situation. Because, uh, first of all, if you change the engine in the vehicle, it doesn't matter if you're doing it yourself or it's done through a dealership, you've got a new engine number. So that means it's police clearance, your e-natus registration document needs to be changed, it needs to be data dotted. So, first of all, it's a big uh, admin task uh, ahead if you want to uh, change your engine and then to get it all legal to be able to sell the car on. Uh, all those things need to be in place. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it's a double it's short, really, because sometimes you get a vehicle that's advertised 
Um, it's a relatively like an older older vehicle with like say 200,000 k's on the clock, but the guy will say, yeah, but the engine got replaced 10,000 k's and it's a new engine, so basically the vehicle's 1,000 k's. But then you think to yourself, why did it fail? And was the change professionally done? Is there some other hiccups what will, that will happen now that it's got a, a new engine in the car? So my gut feeling is that it doesn't really add that much value if you state the car's got a new engine than you thought it would. So I don't think it's worthwhile spending a hundred grand replacing an engine if you're not uh, expecting a hundred grand to be added on top of the car's price. That wouldn't happen. That, that's my personal opinion. Yes, yes. So then, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a conversation we had um, with two gentlemen that deal with basically cars that are at a point where they are scraps, um, not written off by like insurance companies and they can still be repaired, but they've reached the end of their lives. At what point should one actually assess like your, this car is done? When is it no longer worth it to start f- to, to continue fixing things in a vehicle? Yeah, I suppose that's a very difficult question to, to answer in general because it all depends where you are in, in life, sort of. Sometimes in, 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 especially in South Africa where with a lower income group that's so massive is you need your transport. So you need to keep that car going at all costs. Um, but at some point, obviously the repair costs just outweigh having the benefit of the vehicle and, I mean, currently, we, we, if, you, if you haven't got a vehicle anymore, there's some other options like Uber, public transport, all those kind of things to investigate. But, yeah, there's, there's definitely a point in time where your expenses, um, if, you, if you're an income group that can afford a new car, even if it's an entry-level car, then you know what your monthly repayment will be on that new car, which might include a service plan and everything. So it can now work out that monthly repairs are actually exceeding the amount that you'll pay on your new car, I think you start, need to start to think about it. If you obviously do repair yourself, it doesn't cost you so much money, you're technically minded, you know what to do, you probably can keep a car running for a lot longer and, and keep it financially viable than somebody with no knowledge that you'll take the car into the dealership every time there's a problem because the, the, the bills will count up very quickly. Yes. All right, there is a question here um, regarding um, a, a, a car where they say they're not mentioning the brand because they took it to an official dealership, but they got told that the intercooler is leaking air and the diaphragm shaft is broken. The quotation that was received from the dealership is 24,000 rands. Is this reasonable for any kind of repair and replacement? And is it safe to go outside of the dealership to other places to get it fixed? Okay, yeah. so car components uh, new from a dealership, unfortunately, is very expensive. So you mentioned the intercooler there. I mean, did you also mention a drive shaft? Intercooler and di- is a diaphragm shaft? So maybe it's drive shaft. I'm not sure. The intercooler is a component. It looks like a radiator almost. So when the turbo compresses the air before it goes into the engine, it's extremely hot. And the intercooler is sort of a radiator that helps cool the air before it goes the engine so that increases efficiency mm. and power and so on so it's a delicate component which is basically a radiator and it is quite expensive if you buy a brand new one from the dealership now there might be uh, aftermarket places that will say no we can actually fix that intercooler it's normally made out of uh, aluminium alloy and so sometimes if there's a small leak they can maybe weld it up and that will get you along 
Um, so that's something to investigate, but it's true. I mean, components in a car these days, as we know, new cars is a car uh, exponentially, but we shouldn't forget that car components are doing the, are doing the same thing. So, I mean, uh, engine replacement can easily be a hundred thousand rands, and that's on a small car. I don't even talk about the, the luxury cars and so on. Gearbox replacement, anything upwards of fifty thousand rands, even on a cheap car. So, it all depends on what component has failed, the complexity of the component. Do you need to comp- uh, replace the whole component? So normally you can only replace like maybe a sensor on a gearbox mm. or there's some component in the engine that you can replace and not the whole engine. But there are sometimes you do get a dramatic failure in the engine that will just destroy the whole engine and you basically need a new one. But yeah, so uh, to summarize, it's quite possible that you can get a 20,000 plus uh, bowl for uh, replacing an intercooler and a drive shaft by the sounds of it. But I would also get a second opinion and see in the aftermarket if there's not companies uh, that's actually specializing in fixing uh, leaks on intercoolers, the same way as to get the aftermarket radiator repair shops. Okay. And then, I mean, based on what you're saying, would you say the general principle is that if a person's looking to keep their car out of warranty, they should uh, uh, take an, an, a new warranty plan? Well, the, if you can afford a, like an extended warranty, it, it makes sense if you sort of want to budget beforehand. But just be careful to read the small print because sometimes it doesn't cover everything. So, you know, as I said, my sort of tipping point of, of getting a new car versus the old one is your expenses per month. So see if you can sort of average your expenses per month over the last six months or a year. And then compare it to what would your down payments be on a new car. And I also don't uh, mean all these balloon payments, all those kind of things. The old school paying of your car amount, that is sort of the one that I think is the tipping point. Okay, okay, I've got you. Uh, there's a question here. Afternoon, Rilev I have a 2015 Honda HRV 1.5 Elegance model that seems to consume too much petrol than I pour. I have checked, but the mechanic... Um, as well stated that it does not have a problem. Okay, so cars with uh, heavy fuel consumption, obviously the thing that, that influences fuel consumption the most is driving style. Um, so what I always tell uh, the, the listeners or some of my friends even, if they complain about fuel consumption, check what is the claimed figure of that car. Now, the claimed figure of a car is very conservative, I would rather like add 20% uh, to it. So if it's uh, stating that it will use 10 liters per hundred, I add 20% to think it will probably only con- consume closer to 12 liters per hundred. And then what you can do is zero the trip computer and go on the, the uh, national uh, roads at say 100 kilometers per hour, switch aircon off, keep it constant, and drive for about, I don't know, 10, 20 kilometers, and just check what sort of fuel consumption readout you get. If you get close to that claim figure, it means the car is actually able to do it. And maybe your specific driving style in town, stop-start driving, very aggressive aggressive on an accelerator. Also, remember, if you're aggressive on the brakes, it's basically the same thing because you're throwing away kinetic energy that you just build up. Um, but yeah, normally make sure that the car is fully serviced. That's very important because all the filters, air filters, all those kind of spark plugs need to be replaced for your engine to run efficiently. And then if you still think the car is consuming too much fuel, take it for a diagnostic check. 
that will go through each and every sensor, make sure there's not something inherently wrong with the engine. Um, what I've seen before, for example, is the O2 sensor that uh, checks for your air fuel ratio in the petrol engine. It's gone wrong. It might overfuel and it might use uh, too much fuel. But most, in most cases, if there's a problem like that, you will have an error display on your instrument cluster telling you something is wrong. So, yeah, just a few ideas there. Um, I don't know if this is a quick one to answer, Nicole. We have less than a minute. But the question says, why does Mitsubishi replacement parts take so long to get here? Side mirror or front grill, it's up to two months. Yeah, so if I answer short, Mitsubishi is obviously small in South Africa, so they might not keep a massive parts store uh, in South Africa, and they need to fly it in from Japan all the time, so that's probably where the delay comes from. If you have a vehicle that's manufactured in South Africa, selling at high volumes, uh, the chances are that the parts will uh, be more readily available. So, yeah, if you drive a vehicle that's not so popular, so many vehicles are then you can expect delays on parts. Nickel, another one. I hope you can get it in 15 seconds. Is it a bad thing to take a balloon payment? A question on the WhatsApp line. I would say yes, because it makes you afford a car that you actually can't afford in the first place. And when the time's up for that balloon payment, then you're in trouble. Because then you need to either get a new car, a bigger balloon payment, or I don't know, you're actually in trouble. So I would say you actually then afford a car or buying a car you can't afford. Literally. So there is a difference between qualifying and affording. Do not allow them to jig the numbers around to make you afford a car that you want. Don't fall into that trap. Nicolo, thank you so much. We'll be with you soon again on the car feature. And to all of you, thank you so much for joining us on 702 Afternoons. All of the the conversations we have had today will be podcasts. Go to 702.co.za or head over.